When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Bird Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we wrap up our Q&A session with Fritz Heller. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 247. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We're going to finish up our Q&A session with Fritz Heller today on all things grouse and grouse dogs, specifically flushing dogs. We'll get to part two of our conversation in just a moment. I want to mention a quick thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast, those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show to keep these conversations coming your way. I do appreciate it, and those patrons are eligible for bonus content. I will, in fact, be recording another bonus episode with some video clips from the Grouse Woods with Nick Adair the morning that this episode releases, so patrons can stay tuned for that. There will be a bonus episode up on the Patreon page in the very near future. They also get access to our Patreon giveaways. Remember last week, Rocky won the Bird Dog of the Day swag. And we send everybody some can coolers and stickers as a thank you as well. I am out of the can coolers at the moment, but in the process of resupplying. So just a heads up if you are waiting for those. I had a bunch of people that I reached out to recently to grab addresses so I could send out those can coolers and stickers. So if you are still looking for those, just hold tight. I'll get them out as soon as I can. Got to resupply on the can coolers. You can learn more and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right. I forgot to mention this last week. I had intended to, but after my conversation with Fritz, shortly after we recorded the interview and he told me about scratching his eye in the grouse woods, 
I was out in the woods and I had a stick come up and give me a pretty good scratch right on the eyeball. Probably the worst one that I have ever got. Fortunately, all is well. Nothing was seriously damaged and mine did not goop up like Fritz's did. But I did have a nasty, nasty red eye and some pain for like 24 to 36 hours. It did not feel good. Anybody that spends a decent amount of time in the grouse woods knows that you will get a little brush worn, as we might like to say. Take a stick to the face, to the ear, to the thigh. Get a little beat up busting the brush. That's part of grouse hunting. That is part of embracing the suck, as Fritz likes to say, and many grouse hunters do. But even when you are wearing good eye protection, like I always do, my Ranger Phantom 2.0 glasses that Fritz and I also talked about, and I had a few people reach out to me asking questions about those as well. I highly recommend those glasses. They did not deflect this particular stick, but I would say it is of absolutely no fault of the glasses. This is just one of those instances where spend enough time in the brush and a stick is eventually going to find the right angle to penetrate any kind of gear or protection you've got set up. So this stick just happened to come up right under the glasses and scraped across the side of my eyeball. And again, no lasting damage, but it did not feel good. And just a little PSA. I did not always wear eye protection in the grouse woods, but I have had a few close calls, including taking a pellet to the eyebrow one time, which I shared at some point on the podcast. So let this be a lesson to you. If you are going to go grouse hunting or any kind of upland hunting, get a good pair of eyewear. If I go into the woods without my glasses now, I feel almost naked. It just does not feel the same. And you only get two eyes. They are a critical component to doing this thing that we all love to do. And even when you do protect them, things can still happen. So I did want to say that I texted Fritz and asked him if he had any remedies over the counter for eyeball scratches. And he asked if it had gooped up and he was consulting me a little bit. And he then texted the medical professional he lives with via marriage, as he jokingly mentioned in part one of the conversation. And Fritz's wife did come back with a recommendation for some eye drops. I went out and grabbed those and they really did help. So thanks to Fritz, thanks to his wife and shameless plug for Ranger Eyewear. I have no affiliation with the company, but go get you some Ranger shooting glasses. They're good stuff. Protect those eyes when you are out there getting slapped in the face by aspen branches and hazel whips. All right, we're just coming off an incredible week of November weather. Unusually warm. We got a little snow after Halloween. Everything melted. The temps warmed back up. It was 40s and 50s this week. It, amazing how quickly 50 degrees almost feels too warm after you're hunting in 35 to 45 degree temps, which honestly feel great, especially for the dogs. That cool weather really helps them get a good run in. But I'm not complaining. Snow-free woods in November. Warm, comfortable temps. I got out in the woods a few times this week. It was awesome. I know Michigan is closed down this week. Their deer season opened on the 15th, so everybody in Michigan is either deer hunting or maybe taking out of state trips or something like that, but I'm kind of hopping around various deer seasons here where I'm at, and there'll be some grouse hunting on the horizon, I'm sure, before we cool down and the snow eventually starts to fly, which I'm certain won't be too long, but who knows? We'll see how the late season progresses. Before we jump in and finish up part two of our conversation with Fritz, I just want to say happy Thanksgiving to all of you. This is the last episode that will be up before the Thanksgiving holiday. So take care, everybody. Be thankful. I hope you've had a great fall and hunting season up to this point, and I know it is far from over. So hopefully you have some hunting, perhaps in your Thanksgiving weekend plans or not long after. But stay safe out there, everybody. Enjoy some time with family and friends and have a happy Thanksgiving next week.
All right, let's jump in and talk some more grouse and grouse dogs. Welcome into the conversation and back to the Bird Shop Podcast, Fritz Heller. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Oh, wait, I was going to ask you, you mentioned the size and confirmation. I know we've talked about that before, but just briefly, what is that kind of size and confirmation you're looking for in your, your dogs? So our dogs are all between 45 and 52 pounds, and I would classically describe them as a Labrador hidden in a uh, well-built German shorthair's body. Mm. I like a dog that's a little longer than it is tall, not thin bone, but not heavy bone. Yep. You know, an athlete. Yep. Yep. You know, you really look at confirmation across performance dogs, and they're really not that different. You compare, you know, a really good English setter, or a really good English pointer. The English setters can get a little smaller, but, you know, the really good athletes are confirmationally sound and, and, and they, you know, fall in some of that, that range. And I just feel like I get the endurance out of the smaller Labrador than a, than a bigger, clunky, healthy dog. And for some reason, my labs lived, you know, to be 14 plus years old. And whether that's conditioning and feeding or it's genetics or, or whatever or size, you know. Yeah. I, I, 60 pound dogs, a lot, a lot. A 60 pound Labrador for me would be a lot of dog. You can kind of tell those dogs that are, you know, sort of built to cover ground. They're right. they they don't they don't run with as heavy a gait, and you know it's the not not necessarily marathon runner, but maybe somewhere between marathon runner and sprinter versus the Olympic weightlifter right. kind of setup. Yeah. You know, you know, give me a free safety. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Right. Yep. All right. Bought a six month old cocker. Now what do I do with it? <laughs> this is Jeremy from out in North Dakota. Uh, six month old cocker. What do I do with it? Uh, take it hunting out there in bird country. Yeah. Socialize it a lot. Start, start basic obedience and, uh, expose it to as, as many birds as, as you can, you can, you know, yeah. do your obedience work at home. Keep your mouth shut the first year and a half when you're out in the woods or in the fields. And those cockers come normally pretty well programmed. Teach it to be a good citizen. Properly introduce it to gunfire. Properly introduce it to retrieving. Don't 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 build any bad habits. And if you need help, there's a million resources out there. Excellent. Uh, all right. Open-ended question: How can we help flushing dog guys help our dogs be more successful at harvesting grouse? Is it either by keeping them close, et cetera? I think he, I think this guy got limited by characters. And I was kind of like going to add in like, so how do we help our flushing dogs be more successful? What are the, like, is there a hierarchy? I mean, you, you've touched on a lot of it, like just letting that dog learn where birds live. Right. Um, park the truck in the right spot. Yep. Take it hunting as much as you can. Have a solid, strong, you know, I can make an argument that, Obedience kills birds too. You know, a dog that's out of control or is mm -hmm. running and not hunting, a dog that won't sit to the whistle, um, a dog that won't come when you call it, all those things go into it. But 
a really solid foundation of obedience and park the truck in the right spot and hope the dog has the genetic makeup through either to become a good, solid, serviceable bird dog. Yeah. I, I don't know if that answers it. I, I mean, cover, you know, being, learning where grouse live, you know, for the most part, Nick, I think we probably would hunt a lot of the same covers. You would apply your hunt to those covers differently than I would. Yeah. But learning and understanding and picking covers that suit your dog's strengths and minimize its weaknesses is important. But you've got to be an efficient, smart hunter and understand the game you're pursuing. And then also identify what your dog's good at and put it in the best position to succeed. Yeah. But solid foundation of obedience, knowing where to park the truck. Yep. Yeah, that's that's I would say that's a that's a great way to answer that. I mean, you got to you got to know how to put your dog in the right situation to get it that experience too. All right. Um one of my favorite Instagram handles at Brooks and Huns. Love it. Uh best advice for a rookie trainer with a flusher who wants to hunt roughies out west. I don't know how much your experience goes there, but um, anything come to mind? I have never hunted grouse west of Minnesota. Okay. So I have no idea. I've never hunted them in Appalachia or just pretty much the Great Lakes. Yeah. And I would imagine, at least I have a dog that um, I bred that lives in Montana that does some forest grouse hunting. I would imagine it's no different. Know where to park the truck. Yeah. Take the dog hunting. Adjust if we got to make obedience or handling changes to the terrain, and and adjust and and take the dog hunting. I mean, game birds are game birds, and if the dog wants to find them and flush them, and you shoot them, and they should retrieve them and 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 go from there. I, I don't finding the right habitat and putting the dog in it, and then figuring out what the dog's struggling at so we can address that issue through exposure or training. Yep. All right. And a lot of, a lot of that has been weaved in throughout the conversation. This right. is, this is an interesting one. How do you typically handle the dog from first scent to shot on a running grouse scenario? Hopefully I don't have to. Okay. Okay. So, um, the best, best bird dogs period Pointing dogs or flushing dogs keep the bird on the ground as long as until the bird is is forced to take flight for whatever reason it is. So, um, you know, one of my best running bird dogs I ever had, she had she had the ability, mostly probably through exposure and genetics, to keep that bird on the ground until we forced it to an edge or we forced it into a blowdown or we forced it to this or that where we came together with the bird. But let's just pretend we're in a cover that is not, you know, that doesn't have a lot of those options to push a bird into a trap. The dog's tracking a bird and and my pace increases. I'm always looking for lanes in the woods where I can move a little bit easier Mm -hmm. or I'm on an edge. So sometimes I'm I'm walking a little faster, I'm hot putting it a little faster, but if, if that dog it's wild. I can tell how close they are to them sometimes just by their activity. Sure. Like Rick will say to me sometimes, getting close to it, getting close to it. And uh, their intensity increases. It's like their eyeballs get bigger. Um, they get more and more animated. So 
it's that with it's that remote stop, right? Yeah. Sometimes I've given a dog a remote stop, and I get up into a, a, a an area where I can swing a gun, or I can move, or I catch up. And you can just tell that you know it's like walking in on a point, right? That dog is just every muscle in it is tight and mm. it's sitting there and that dog is staring straight ahead. And then I give my release command, which is okay. And then, you know, it's just full throttle after that bird and it's in the air. So yeah. typically it makes sense. I do my best to keep up and shut up. But if I have to, it's a remote whistle sit. And, and then I catch up and put myself in a position. I also sometimes will remote sit the dog and I'll walk up in front of it. Yeah. I'm not trying to flush the bird, but you're ready. You're happen. ready for a flush. I'm I'm imagining. But, but I, I I walk to an opening or, or a hole or, yep. or wherever or a little higher ground, and then I release the dog. Yeah. And then sometimes, you know, Friday Rick and I were on a bird, and it must have been a sixty yard track. And Rick sat that dog I think three different times as as we kind of moved up, and and I brought my dog to heal, you know, just to calm things down. This, we, we got one dog that's, that's dialed in. On yeah, it. let it focus. Yep. Man, that, that's really interesting to think about because I think in, I have a tendency in my mind, to, and you've talked about the remote sit before, like I, if, you're, if the dog is working in a direction that you're out of the game, that's where that comes in. That's where that control comes in. But to think about how much the, uh, you can control that scenario and where a dog is, a dog is working a bird, um, you know, those are the, the most exciting ones where you got a dog tracking 50, 60, 70 yards, yeah. that kind of thing. And, and the longer that bird stays on the ground, the higher the likelihood I'm going to get a shot at it. The birds that, that, the birds that use their wing at first is their first escape move. You know what I mean? The, the birds that fly is their, is their first defense. Those are the ones that are just gone. Yes, yes. Yeah, if a grouse just pick up and left you know the minute he heard you coming like we there would be no grouse hunting basically so yeah that's cool um all right number one tip for hunting grouse with flushing dogs any <laughs> if you had to summarize it uh be in the right place yeah knowing where to park yeah. the trucks probably no different than pointing dog or yeah if you're bear hunting or or, or or you know whatever you're doing know where to park the truck i mean you can cast your fly in a hole without trout in it all day, but and you're not going to catch any. Yeah. You know? Um. Yeah. Just just like I've said, having a uh, obedience typically kills birds. At the end of the day, if you've got a good athlete that's had proper exposure, being patient. You know. It, it, you know. They, a lot of times you read this. You know, 500 contacts. I don't know if it's 500 contacts, but I can tell you that you know. My dogs get better and better every year yep. until, you know, they've reached the saturation point where it, 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 you know, it's their job, right? It's what they want to do more than anything on earth. And so, you know, number one tip I can tell you is, is know where to park and have a solid foundation of obedience and a dog that has enough exposure to figure out the, the proper pattern to apply to the cover and the wind and, and the situation you're in. Yeah. Yeah. And that, again, that, knowing knowing where to park the truck it's a great way to summarize i mean it's it but just goes back to it's knowing the knowing the birds the habitat the cover you know the a lot of the other discussions that we have on here that are that are less dog folks and we are going to get into some more bird stuff but 
Um, that one's definitely not one to be overlooked. And that is one of the things that we have the most control over, you know, where we, where we decide to spend our time in the woods. And how do you, you know, I, I mean, I, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but the advantages today of, of mapping and internet and, and virtual scouting and everything have increased everything greatly from when I began 25 years ago, yep. where I would just, okay, I think this looks good, and we just wear our boot leather. But no matter how, how good that mapping is and everything else, it's still boot leather. It's still knowing what cover to be in, what time of the year, under the weather conditions. So sometimes you got to just pay your dues. But that's the most rewarding thing, in my opinion, about yeah. grouse hunting. Yeah. It's going out there paying your dues. And that means you're paying your dues and your dog paying your dues. Yep. You know, they, they've got to have that exposure. They've got to be given the opportunity to make mistakes. Yeah, I feel like you know, we have, we have such an opportunity, like we can be so efficient now because you, because of the digital scouting, you can, you can really, if you get into a good spot, whether you found it by accident or you found it intentionally, you know, it's good. It's so much easier to replicate that on a map, at least in theory, you know, on paper, you can say, well, this looks similar. So I'm going to go put my boots on the ground here. But I also feel like you can, and I've noticed this myself, you can get tunnel vision sort of looking for that stuff. And there's a lot of woods out there, you know, and there's a lot of places that I kind of filter out in my mind through looking at satellite imagery that I could probably go in and have a damn good hunt if I just sort of put some of that stuff aside and went for a walk. And some of that just comes down to, you know, do you have time that day or what are you doing in the woods? But uh, we have a lot of tools and resources available to us, that's for sure. Okay, do you recommend hunting one flushing dog at a time? Pros and cons, thought process. Yes. I never, rarely, never is a, a wrong word. I rarely will put two of my own dogs down at a time. Okay. Now, anytime Rick and I are hunting, we've each got our own dog down. Yep. But typically, we're not walking 15 yards apart. We're walking 40 yards apart. Yeah. He's working, he's working that section. I'm working this section. Um, I do think it's, the problem is, is when I put two of my own dogs down at the same time, one, I get, I I get to hunt enough that, you know, reserving dog power is important, but two, they start to compete with each other Mm -hmm. a lot. For some reason, they don't compete with my brother's dogs, but they'll compete with each other. And is that that they, they they live together and they're buddies and, and. All of that, I don't know. They won't compete with Rick's dogs. They won't compete with Brad's dogs, but they'll compete with each other when I put them down. Every now and then, if I haven't been hunting and I need more or less to exercise them, yeah, you know, and, and I've only got an hour and a half, and so I'm going to hunt two spots. I'll occasionally put a pair of them down together, but not very often. Yep. It, because it's just a mess. I mean, when I, I gang run them, I run them all what I'm doing summer mm-hmm. scouting or conditioning and you know, it, it's mass chaos. I, I mean, I, you know, but I, I'm for the most part walking, I'm, I'm conditioning them. If yep. I'm out training or, or training scout slash scouting, whatever you want to call it, then it's one at a time. Yeah. That's, it's weird. I, in a very similar thought process for me, is like, it's usually a, dog power thing i'd rather just take a a fresh a single fresh dog into two different spots that day than 
cut them both loose on a certain spot. I mean, I'm trying not to get poked in the eye and fall down. When <laughs> exactly. I'm trying to yeah. keep track of two dogs. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's overstimulating a bit. And it's something right. about, and, and same thing, like I run my dogs together when we're exercising every day, and it's not a big deal yeah, because that, I'm just. But you're not, you're focused on. I'm just, you don't have a gun in your hand. I'm just checked you out. Ju- yeah. Yeah. You got a jug of water and a whistle mm-hmm. and, a, and, a, and a Garmin on your hip. That's yeah. different than, Jesus, Pete, I got a dog on point fifty yards over here. I have no idea where the other dog is or what it's doing. I mean, that, I, now yeah. I'm following one dog, and the other dog's actually got the bird over here. I mean, who yeah. knows? Yeah. I, I have seen some pointing dog tandems that, you know, they, like Jay Dowd's dogs, his setters, the first time I ever saw his dogs, Georgie and Ruthie, work together. I mean, it was like, okay, wow, that's, those dogs are literally, they're not competing with one another. They are working this bird together. So, like, if you have that kind of situation going on, I could see how that would be enjoyable. But mine what? are very independent where they're, that's my worst fear. It's but like, bro's on point 100 yards this way and Hartley on point 50 yards behind me, you know? Yeah, What so... What's the, what's the thing we've talked about this whole podcast though so far? How much exposure do do Dowd's dogs have? A lot, a lot, and 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 he hunts them together. You know, I I wonder like right. if I if I if I hunted my dogs together more, would they get better? I just I'm not in they that position. Would. Yeah, I would think so right. too. I I could imagine out on the prairie, pointing dogs together would be easier than, you know. Yeah, just with the visual. In the grouse woods, yeah. Easier easier backing and that kind of stuff, yeah. And you've got bigger country that, you know, might be an advantage to cover more ground. I mean, if you're out west hunting sharp-tails and hounds and it's going to be 80 by 11 a.m. Yeah. And you know you got one, two-and-a-half-hour window here this morning. All right, let's go. I'll pack some extra water. Yep. And that's kind of, that's a good point because, like, it's aside from the pros and cons of like one dog two dog like there's so many other factors like how much time do you have to hunt that day what is the weather like it's right. a lot of those things play into these decisions that you know they just sort of iron themselves out as you go but cool all right all right this is the last one on the dog specific stuff what oh wait we already did we did this what do you train your dog to do after a flush oh no what do you train your dog to do after a flush and no shot sit chase or other I guess it's a little different. Stand there. Stand there. Yeah. Okay. Early in their careers, it's a sit. But then I give them some back where they're, you know, they can they can just stand there. Yeah. And normally they look at, you know, they just kind of, they start to look back. It's, it's amazing. Like, if I'm going through a cover, it's surprising how tuned in to me they are. Because if I'm going through, a, and this isn't the case with young dogs, Right. It, it is, you know, dogs that have three seasons of experience for the most part. And I stop every time I boot. They they just come back to me. Yep. They, they just come back. Okay, wh- why'd we stop? You know. Yep, this so. is different. He's not moving in the same direction. Right. Yep. yep. Right. All right. Um, oh, I was going to toss in there, too. If you, you flush a bird and don't get a shot or whatever, are you – what's your what's – your, general strategy do you like to chase after birds that you flush no. you like to stick to your path goes and, back to yeah. kill the ones you can kill and yep. forget about the ones you can't and if it flies for some reason in the direction mm-hmm. i'm headed but honestly in the high pressured lower peninsula covers that i spend most of my time that bird's gone taken off yeah it's pretty rare that you, and if you do get a second flush it's pretty hard to get it 
worked properly or in range, it's kind of on high alert. Yeah. If that bird heads in the direction I'm headed, then fine. If we come across it again, for the most part, I've got a specific way I want to work cover. Yep. And, you know. Yep. I'm, I'm the same way. It's not, not quite the same after that first flush, but... Right. But mainly, yeah, it's just I, I want to keep heading in a certain direction, and I mean, I'm, I'm happy to find the next one. Right. One thing that's attractive to me about steelhead fishing is I feel like I'm catching a fish that nobody's ever caught. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I target them in areas where I think that gives me the highest probability. I don't want to catch a fish a guy caught two days ago and released. Yeah. Okay. We are transitioning now into some more bird-related stuff. Uh, okay, so this first one is, again, it's a little bit longer one, but it's a good one. He's listened to the past. So, all right. Uh, hey, Nick, hope you're enjoying your hunting season. I know the Hellers are big pattern guys when it comes to the time of year and where they hunt grouse. This past weekend, I had probably my best day of grouse hunting and was trying to nail down some form of pattern to try to recreate. We hunted all kinds of different covers, including soil types, and seemed to find them everywhere. I will say they were obviously largely aspen covers, some were older, quite sparse. Some were younger. A lot of different ground cover. Some had hazel everywhere, adjacent to oak stands. Were along, others were along swamp and conifer edge. So sitting all the high notes here. I looked at the crops. All were eating whatever was available. Hazelnuts, thorn apples, wild strawberry, clover. Uh, one ch- ch- choked full of catkins. Only thing I know for sure is we did not find them in scrub oak. Is no pattern whatsoever a pattern? What information would you or him take away from that to remember moving forward? Uh, he's got one more follow-up, but if you're finding them all over the place, what do you do? Just keep hunting? Yeah, it's a gold letter day, right? Yeah. You know, so patterning can be important unless the birds are just out. So those type of days traditionally happen for me when you've had a weather event that's hold the birds up for two, three, four days in a row. And then... They, they haven't ha- been able to go about their day in a normal fashion, so now they're just out and everywhere. And I'll bet you if he thinks back, he saw more rabbits and deer and mm. whatever else that day, too, you know. So for whatever reason, it's just a, that's just a gold-letter day when you can find them at every spot you stop the truck. Yep. Uh, I mean, I started Friday morning thinking that I was going to hunt oak trees in Aspen, right? Big, you know, a lot of times when they do a cut and... and the state of Michigan, they'll leave those big oak trees. And after three of those covers and moving zero, one, and two, uh, I I decided that that wasn't the pattern I was going to stick to. And so I started switching for other patterns. So patterns emerge and identify patterns when you're not having success and then you're having success and you try and duplicate it. There was a specific age class when we were in Minnesota this year, and the Western UP, that the, there was more birds in than in other age classes. It, it was that specific. Also, paying attention. If you weren't finding rabbits in those covers, you probably weren't finding a lot of grouse. Interesting. What do you think that is? I have no idea. Huh. But those covers that had snowshoe hares in them and, and cottontails, there was grouse in. You go into a cover that didn't have very many of them, there weren't, there weren't that many grouse in Yeah. Well, I would be I would be curious if anybody listening has any thoughts on that. That's because uh, I I you know, I see which you know patterns emerge because of weather too. Yeah, right. Like you know, and and it could be 
you know, if you have a great big cover, it could just be, you know, the pattern could change within that cover. Yeah. Uh, you know, are they down in the alder because it's been dry? Are they in the pines because it's been wet? The pines that are in that cover, right? Yeah. Are, are they up high because it's windy? Yep. So it depends on the region you're in and, and what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think thinking on it, I think that's a great point. Thinking about it on that sort of cover level is like, because these birds don't pick up and fly 20 miles. You know, they're, no, they're around. But I think they move, at least in the northern lower, they move more than we think. Yeah. And what's also fascinating to me is I went into a spot Friday and Last year, it was a pretty consistent spot. I think I probably hunted it three times and killed a couple birds out of it. But we, I was moving birds consistently last season in it the, the couple times I went in there. And this winter, they logged off uh, the adjacent cover, the adjacent woodlot. Like, they did probably a 40-acre logging. I can't find a bird. In, I've been in that spot twice this year, mm. and I can't find a bird to save my life. And that is a pattern that I've found kind of in the 90-mile area I hunt and, and some of the other stuff is, for whatever reason, that, that amount of logging activity seems to move birds out of the adjacent productive cover. I feel like I've seen that as well, uh, oddly, where, where you've still got your perfect cover right next to it, but there's a, there's a fresh timber harvest, and for yeah. whatever reason the birds are gone, it changed the natural ebb and flow of that area for enough and yeah i feel like i've seen that too i mean it's just that's interesting over and eliminated the, the ability for new birds to shuffle and recruit back into those spots yeah you know it, it took away their their natural corridor to go from cover a a mile down the road to cover b when they're shuffling or, or or males are starting to establish their you know their little corner of the world yeah uh yeah, Can I don't. We answer that? Yes, yeah, I don't. I was just reviewing his. Um, I don't remember what. I don't know if I know what state he was hunting in, but I was just gonna say, basically, like what you did. You know, I mean, it sounds like the one day he was out. You know, the weather and conditions maybe were such that the birds were spread out and feeding everywhere, and the you know there was right. they had what they Leave needed. Lots yeah, move in a lot. Yep. you know, you had a dang good day in the woods. He said he he did hunt the next day, similar cover, and found twenty five percent of the birds. Um, you know, so w- what we don't know is like, did the conditions change or anything like that? But, um, well, yeah, did, did it go back to the covers he found all the birds in? It, I mean, yeah, all he said was similar cover, so that's okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, anyways, yeah, good. Pretty hard to find, you know, pretty hard to find. I I never do it, but one day last season I found just a pile of them in, in a pretty specific cover, and I went back the next day with my son, and there was. I couldn't find it. You know, I found like two and they were super jumpy. Right? Yeah. Like I, I, I dispersed them pretty heavily and that cover hadn't had a chance to recruit them back yet. Yep. Yeah. And I, I imagine you're similar to like, a, I actually have a question that I got squirreled away here that it's like, you know, a lot of covers I hunt once a year, you know, and, and right. so it's like, you're not going back every week. I mean, I will hunt a cover more than once in a season, but it's, it's maybe twice and it's based on the first time what happened and that kind of thing, but it's pretty rare. So you're getting like a, a annual checkpoint reference point on these places and you're not going to have all the answers basically. No. 
Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. All right, we'd love to hear a bit about how time of day influences Fritz's cover choices. Typically, um, in the morning, I'm going to hunt what I would call thermal cover or, or heavy stem density. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know if you noticed it, but the worst, let's take, let's pretend we have 11 hours of daylight, right? Like, sun comes up at 7.30 and it's too dark at 6.30 or yeah, whatever yeah. that time period is. 10 hours, 11 hours of daylight. First couple of hours in the morning, I'm going to be in pretty heavy stem density, somewhere where the birds feel secure and potentially they've got some roosting opportunities pretty adjacent to them. And they're not maybe on a heavy feed bag in the morning, which I, I rarely find grouse heavy feed bag in the morning unless there's real specific cold fronts coming through. You know, or it's going to start snowing or raining this afternoon, so they kind of sense that pressure, bare, barometric pressure, yep. and they know they got to feed because they might not be able to feed tonight. So thermal cover in the morning, and then whatever that, you know, noon to 2 o'clock period is, when there's significant daylight, is pretty tough. <laughs> I, I don't slow. know if you notice that. Yeah. It's slow. Yep. They, like, disappear. Now, the shorter the days get, the less that happens. Agreed. Yep. But for October, you know, noon to two is not that great. Then, as the day wears on, I start getting, and hopefully the birds get more active and start moving towards food sources or actively feeding. Mm-hmm. Then I'm starting to hunt maybe a little less stem density, making sure there's a food source available you know, pockets of heavy cover where they can escape to, but also, you know, feed adjacent to it and run back into it, yep. quick flight back into it. Everybody thinks that if it gets dark at 7, they think the golden hour is 6 to 7 p.m. The golden hour is 5 to 6 p.m. Yeah, yep. Because those birds have typically fed by 6 p.m. and they're starting to move to the roost. So now is when I'm really getting focused on edges those last couple hours of the day where I'm trying to intercept birds from their food source to where they're walking to roost for the night. Yep. Do you have a do you have a favorite time of day to hunt? Is it that time? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's that yeah. it's that, you know, like I said, if it's dark at seven, five to six PM. Yep. Yeah, I w- I would echo a lot of that. Um I tend to hunt a lot more in the afternoon now just because it 
fits with my schedule and it's the rhythm of the day, but it's also based on a lot of what you're saying. You know, the mornings, now I used to hunt more in the mornings and I know people that have plenty of success in the mornings, but I just sort of look at that as, you know, maybe there's dew, maybe the woods are wet. I feel like it's a, the, the birds, you know, they do get going right away, but I'm just like, I think it's, I'm almost like projecting my own feelings. Like I, I don't need to get out in the woods immediately. It, a perfect day for me is, is get organized after, you know, at noon or lunch or whatever and get out for the afternoon. And as you said, I feel like this time of year right now with the days getting shorter, like any time afternoon, basically to the end of the day is it's, it's getting pretty good. And that quiet dead period during the, during the peak of the day is less so right yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, I rarely ever start grouse hunting until an hour after sunrise. Yeah. It's not a pheasant or a duck thing, you know? Yep. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's um, a nice part of it. Because they, they, they need, they need time to move from roost into mm-hmm. stem density and security. And then you should really make those, that, those two hours or that two and a half hour, your first couple of good walks in the morning, you should make count. And then maybe you scout and figure out a plan for the afternoon and then start getting back after it. I, I, I used to get to hunt a ton of afternoons, but with kids being my age, you, you might change your program. To Less so now. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I could see that. Yep. You know, and sometimes School too that. School sports. Yeah. That middle of the daytime too, like if there's going to be wind that day, you know, usually the middle of the day, it's going to be the breeziest and you just got a lot working against you versus the sort of the cooler not cooler but calmer mornings and evenings right okay will grouse run on flushers like they do pointers yep yeah the bird is no different because of the dog bird's behavior is bird's bird behavior yep um there was a question i wanted to ask you about the tracking thing when we were talking about it earlier when because it is interesting to think about, you know, this, the flushing dog doesn't have this stop and point, but you can maintain the control over them if they're going to flush the bird. But when you when you were talking about keeping the bird on the ground, so the dog that's that's keeping the bird on the ground, they're they're figuring out this way that that my pointing dogs might to put enough pressure on the bird to stay with it, but not to put it in the air because the dog in my estimation could overpower the bird and put it into the air at any time right well grouse are leaving pointing dogs are smelling a lot of body scent yeah i'm sure the flushing dogs are too but they're working the ground also so what is the pace that we're pursuing this bird and then also you know the best ones the best trackers aren't overrunning that scent where they lose it yeah so maybe that's really what I mean by keeping the bird on the ground, where they're pretty intent on following that that scent left on the ground, and then of course when they get the when they get into that body scent zone is when they're going to charge. Okay. So that bird's trying to run to escape, and that dog's got to stay on it, put enough pressure on it to not lose it, but to try and force it into a pinch point or a trap, right? And I have no idea how to teach it. Yeah. It, it's just the best dogs do it, you know, and, and then you figure out, you know, my dog Boots is really, really good at it. Slows down on scent. The best flushing dogs I've had slowed down a little bit on scent. And then at the moment of really closing the gap, right, gap management, mm-hmm. they're going to, they're going to, you know, now they're pushing hard and charging. And 
but some dogs that are really fast at it, maybe I'm putting them in a bigger cover that, that doesn't have as much defined characteristics to it. And I'm letting them, I'm letting them hoover it up, you know, and trying to force birds into the air. Yeah. Versus I'm running my little bit more cautious dogs and, and more technical covers that, you know, have more objectives and, and, you know, might be more linear. Right. Yep. Yeah. That, that makes sense to me. I, I don't know that I've ever thought about it or heard it put that way, but I can, I can envision the dog is when it's following that tracking, that foot scent, it's kind of slowing itself down, self-regulating because it's figuring out the puzzle versus having that body scent right in its face where the dog knows the bird is there. Right. Is it often, is it often developed like that in kind of a crescendo where you pretty much, you see the dog get scent and then it's, you know, how, whether the bird is 50 yards away or 10 yards away, you're, you're seeing it work right into the bird. Correct. Yeah. It's clear what's going on. I mean, to the point where, you know, I'm saying that if I'm hunting with Rick or if I'm hunting alone or I'm hunting with Harrison, it's we've got a runner. Yeah. You know, we're telling each other we've got a runner. Then you're looking for your lanes and where you're going to be and watching the dog and doing all the things that we do. Okay. Fellow Northern Lower Peninsula hunter here. She said, I know you don't typically shoot woodcock. How do you handle doodle contacts do you explicitly seek out covers where they are less likely to be um i just don't shoot them and so the dogs flush them and we go about our business of looking for grouse yeah you know maybe a you know leave them alone but i am definitely hunting grouse so i'm not always if i want to go target woodcock i would pick different covers different places yeah 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 okay um, and we, now he, he was asking about Pacific Northwest. We know you haven't hunted them out, out West. So, um, that would be, it's a little bit different bird, but obviously some similarities apply. Um, do you like running bells on your dogs or going stealthy for grouse? No, I'm the only, I run the cocker with a bell in September. Okay. Because she's just not moving enough stuff for me. And then not only do I run her with a bell, I take duct duct tape and put it inside the bell. Quiet it down. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, I I just don't enjoy listening to clankety, clankety, clankety nonstop. Otherwise, I don't don't run a bell at all. Yeah. Ever. I could definitely see that. Maybe a young dog early and training and stuff just so I can, if I'm working on handling and it's, you know, August and the cover's super thick and super green. A little more feedback on the dog. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. The bird trees. Shoot or walk away? There's not much uh, to each their own, right? The law says you can kill so many. Right. So to, to each their own. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't shoot a lot of tree birds. What about like I will shoot I will shoot a, I will shoot a bird that flushes out of a tree. Right, right. That's what I was gonna. But, that, but I, you know. Yeah, and I, I didn't. I, I guess I don't know if he was asking specifically. Um, you know, do you like? I guess what I do. I I, I kind of will take a pass by the tree, and if the bird takes off and I get a good look, I will shoot at it. But I would say as time has gone on, I've I've become less and less interested in. I don't know, they're just harder shots, and I'm, I'm kind of selective in the shots I take, I guess. The the exception to that rule might be if, 
Uh, I have a young dog that's been working really hard. And, uh, you know, and it, it worked a bird great and, and, and everything. In the northern lower peninsula, we, we rarely ever get birds to sit in trees. Yeah, yeah. I mean, rare, you know. Sometimes in August, early September, but even in early September, if they do sit in a tree, they're kind of hard to find sitting in that tree. But, you know, if I had a young dog and I had an opportunity to shoot a tree bird that that dog, you know, really genuinely needed a retrieve to reinforce the behavior I liked. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. Yep. I did. I killed a bird that flushed out of a tree last week. I was hunting and covering my Hartley was on point. It was actually weird. I didn't get a point notification. So I, in hindsight, I think he was, I think he maybe he had bumped this bird in the tree. I don't know. But he was standing under the tree, and he wasn't locked up. He doesn't lock up cold on a treed bird like my younger setter will. So he was kind of standing there and maybe moving his head around a little bit. But he stood there and waited for me, and it took me a long time to get to him. And I walked in, and another bird, I immediately heard another bird chirping on the ground, and it flushed very quickly. I did not get a shot, but hardly didn't move. So I walked over to him, and I'm kind of waiting for the second bird. And then he looks up in the tree, and sure enough, there's a bird above him. And in that scenario, I'm ready, but not super aggressive. But this bird, it didn't rock it out of the tree like they often do. It kind of fluttered up and made it an easy decision for me. So I dropped it. There you go. Yeah. I like wing shooting. Yeah, I, I do as well. I mean, when ducks land in the decoys, we then flush them and shoot them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Do you, okay, do you have more success walking trails or off trails? off trails yeah everybody walks trails and everybody runs their things down i mean we don't have trails in the northern lower right you got to go to the up or northern wisconsin or minnesota for that yeah so um yeah i mean i i yeah i'm a bus brusher yep that, that said i mean there, there's a time of day and certain weather pattern where they're coming to all that clover and mm-hmm. blackberry and whatever else is growing along that light opening and absolutely uh, I'll walk a trail, you know, sometimes it's pretty nice and relaxing if the birds are moving to that area, yep. but, yep. but that's a, that's a pattern, right? Yep. Yeah. And the, as you point out, you know, in the, like the areas that I tend to hunt trails are pretty, they're pretty ingrained in sort of the covers. And I mean, there's a lot of cover that's not along the trail, but they're usually incorporated in one way or another in, in my hunts. Okay. But, you know, again, this, hey, this, and the older I get, the more and more I might start walking trails. Sure, sure, yeah. It's like they're there, and again, the birds do use them. But I will tell you when when you know we go to the UP and we go to northern Minnesota, my buddy Eddie ends up being the trail guy, right? So if we're walking four wide, like we do a little bit out there, a lot of times we're split up in pairs. But you know, he gets plenty of shooting opportunities out there on that trail. Yeah. You know, one guy's 80 yards in, one guy's mm-hmm. 40 in, another guy's 40 in, and yeah. Yeah. All right. We got a couple more here, and we're wrapping up. Um, this guy has Cottonelle or Charmin flushable wipes. Oh, no. My <laughs> wife bought me. Dude wipes. I was just going to say. case of them. We've, we have 100% switched to dude wipes. <laughs> so far, so good? Yeah. Great. Good. Great product. Yeah. yeah. I I saw a bag of those in Del Whitman's truck this summer and I have I gave I, them to did him. Did you? <laughs> yeah, because 
because my wife bought like a case or, or honestly, I think she had like <laughs> a drug rep or something come into her office and give her a case of them. And she brought home an entire case. And so last year when we had our opening night party, I handed out. <laughs> I don't think she paid for that case. It was a box of like 20 packs. And uh, yeah, dude wipes. Yeah. Best one. I'm on, right amount of moisture. I'm on board. Yeah, I agree. And the, is that, was that a YouTube video that you guys did? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's it called? Yeah. Do you, do, you have, uh, do you remember? I have no idea. I'd have to go back. All right. I got to find it. Like if I go to the, is it the Consummate Sportsman? No, it's uh, the Grouse Commander channel. Oh, okay. Have. I mean, it's all still up there. Yeah. I got so tired of wearing a GoPro and editing. Yeah, and, yeah. You know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a link to that video. Just It's kind of sort of an inside joke, that question, but funny. Yeah. yeah. It's like the Ras Burrito joke. Yeah. <laughs> People have seen the Ras Burrito video <laughs> with Sergeant Beekman. Yeah. So yeah, dude wipes. That's the official recommendation. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm a new grouse hunter living. I think this guy knows where you live. I'm living li- new grouse hunter living in Traverse City, Michigan, and I'm wondering how to find a mentor. Um, we, why do you need a mentor? I mean, mentors are important. I had lots of great mentors. Um, I'm too busy to mentor people anymore. Just go hunting. You know. Are there any events or anything that you would maybe point them to, oh, to well, the, mingle with the, the right grouse, people? The Rough Grouse Society still got, you know, still an active chapter here. I've gotten so busy with coaching and yep. my business that, you know, at some point I had to prioritize my time or I wouldn't get to hunt and fish as much as I'd like to. So, you know, there, there's still stuff. There's, there's all kinds of seminars. I mean, I think that that Rough Grouse Society seminar they do over in Wisconsin is probably an excellent start. Yeah. To, to learning about grouse hunting it's not just region specific but great lakes all share a ton of commonality whether you're in the northern lower the up or wisconsin or minnesota you know so a lot of it's just going hunting and then a lot of it's listening to these podcasts you can learn a lot from these podcasts but you know there is no shortcut in grouse hunting mentors can help greatly but the, the biggest asset is boot leather and, and observation yeah I think sometimes when people are asking, you know, how do I find a mentor? They're there, and I, again, I won't speak exactly for this person, but sometimes they're saying, "How do I find a buddy to go hunting with?" And right. and to your point, like that, you know, that's really what you need to do: go hunting. But if it it can be helpful to have somebody else there to kind of think through some of these decisions and all the questions you have as an amateur. Um, so, but like I've seen people use. Facebook and in social media right. a lot in that way is, hey, hey, I'm in this area and looking for people to go hunting with. And, uh, you know, not everybody's going to be interested in that, but usually there's somebody that says, hey, I meet up with you for a day. So that that yeah. would be something go, I would do. Go to the gun club, right? Yeah. And, you know, go start shooting sporting clays and, and skeet and meet those guys that are doing that. And Yeah. If you have specific questions about hunting and stuff like all the people that have written in, I mean, it's pretty easy to get that stuff answered um, right. via a podcast or a, or a, a social media thing. But if you're just looking for somebody to go hunting with, you know, you can do that too. Just got to. Well, you know what? The best advice is do what I did, which is adopt a buddy and say, hey, you want to learn this with me? Right. Yep. And then you got somebody to share gas with and, yep. and you know, go. Yep. Yeah, bring somebody along. That's good. Right. Um, all right. And then this he was this wasn't really a question for you, but I know uh you have some thoughts on it. So you really need a recommendation for pants. I love the technical function of new 
newer pants, but don't like the way many of them look. What are you, what are you wearing? Oh, uh, I, you know, obviously I wear pipe gear mm-hmm. and I wear pipe gear because, um, not just because Brent and I have been friends for a long time, but because I do believe it's the best stuff out there. You, you've got to make a decision with gear. You're going to get light, wa- somewhat waterproof and durable. It's hard. You're going to get two out of the three. Yeah. You, you're not going to get them all. Same with boots, right? So I wear the pipe gear stuff. Um, I've been fortunate enough that Brent's asked us to field test a lot of it. There, there is no such thing as what's perfect for me might not be perfect for you. Yeah. But I, I wear almost exclusively pipe gear. And, and, you know, I probably wear it a little bit different than my brother wears it or you would wear it. But Brent makes really good stuff. And uh, a friend of mine, not a close friend, but a friend got a, a competitor's pair of pants. And it's like, what, you know, and, and had them, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, you know, we're just looking them over and everything. They weren't even on them. Yeah, they look like a really nice pair of pants. Same price point as the Pike Gear stuff. But they were they they probably weighed significantly more. Yeah, like heavier. I, I I'm just blown away by by the Pike Gear stuff. And I tell Brent, he makes fun of me. I said, you know, because he's really best known for his pants. But that that shooting shirt is unbelievable. The which one? You know, Kiowa Tongas. The Kiowa shooting. Okay. Shirt. Yep. Yep. It, it, it's it is wild how comfortable light it is. And people are like, "Oh well, I, I walked through a uh, I walked through a BlackBerry thing and it got snagged." Yeah, everything's gonna yeah. get snagged when you walk through a BlackBerry thing. Like, like you know, if you're you have to embrace the suck when you're grass hunting. If you don't enjoy being wet and miserable, that, like that's what makes it special. Is it's hard. Yep. You know, it's hard. It's hard hunting. There's stuff grabbing at your chest and your feet and your arms, and sometimes you can't mount a gun and you're swimming through cover. You know. Yep. Stuff's going to get beat up. It's hard. Yep. Stuff gets beat up, worn out. Yep. Um, the, I, I do have the Kiowa shirt, and I like that because, I mean, he does have the, I think it's like a reinforced patch on the, like your forearms where you're more likely to shred it and push yeah. brush away. But what I what the technical clothing has done for me is I dress lighter and lighter. You know, it's smart layering, but you can wear you Correct. can wear really light clothes. It's an active sport. You know, you you can once you get your circulation going, you can hunt in pretty cold weather without a whole lot of clothes. I mean, the last thing I want to be doing is wearing super heavy, you know, tin cloth that kind of like it just doesn't really make sense for for the kind of hunting that Put we're doing. Put it this way: the, the like his first run of Kiowa shirts. You know, he gave me two. And I'm still wearing them to this day. Yeah, that's I've got good. two of those new shirts. These were the ones without the patches. Okay. And and you know I've just kind of got them in inventory. For, I wear one of them, but I got two more in inventory. I'm still wearing them. I finally kind of wore out a pair of Kiowa pants. His original run. Okay. I'm wearing a four year old pair of Tongas pants that are still going. But if you think you're going to keep pants 100 percent waterproof, you're nuts. Right. Pants doesn't matter. It's like keeping waders from leaking. Good luck. Yeah. Have you, do you have the, the, um, the Dakota pant at all? Yes, I do. He sent me two pairs of those. What do you think of those? Unbelievable. Okay. Uh, most briar resistant pant I've ever worn for mm-hmm. the weight. They, they are a cold weather pant for sure. Okay. You know, but if it's below 35 degrees and I'm hunting really heavy cover or it's wet, 
they have stayed waterproof way longer than I anticipated also. Okay. I, really impressive pant. Yeah, that's cool. I, I, know, I've got a pair of the North Cuts, where, which is where his heavy ones, and those have become, uh, I, I, you know, nice pant too, but I tend to wear those to do yard chores. Now are those are those obsolete now, or did the Dakota replace yeah, those? Yeah, he... Yeah, he replaced them with the North with the North Cut, and he did it. And the North Cuts are great. Okay. Or no, I'm sorry. Switch that around. He replaced them with the Dakota. Correct. Yeah. The North Coat got replaced with the Dakota pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. But that Dakota, ten years ago, would have been my everyday pain, my everyday pair of pain. Yep. But the other thing about this stuff is it dries out so fast, mm-hmm. and that's huge. You know, you walk on the cover and make it five minute walk back to your truck and the wind's blowing you're almost dry yep yeah that really that changes the game as far as just just drying airing out um really changes the feel of your gear setup versus being and i'm still wet. wearing his original vest yep the wingman and it is um there i mean it's a little faded and a little dirty but there's that's good. Zero, I've had zero issues with it. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I I wanted to include that because I was uh, I noticed the Dakota pants, and I was kind of thinking I don't really. In the past, I've had a later season pair of pants. I haven't recently been switching, but that one caught my attention just because I know how lightweight the Pike gear stuff is, and the the briar protection comes up a little higher, kind of like almost to your hips on those. So it's a it's a neat looking pant. I was um. I was disappointed he not making a Kiowa, and he might bring it back. Yeah, because that's my September pant. Yeah, I, you know, he he's like, well, I just wear the Tongass pant pretty much year round, and I wear the Tongass pant pretty consistently at under fifty degrees. That's kind of your daily driver. Um, yeah, but that Kiowa pant early in the year is yeah. my daily driver. Yeah, when it's yeah, and you guys had some heat this year. Yeah, right. Cool. All right, um, I got. Maybe two more for you. You got time? All right. Yep. Okay. These are my questions. We're we're through all the listeners, so thanks for the listeners. But um, do you? Well, I was kind of mentioned earlier. Like we have these covers where, like, you know, I might hunt them once a year. And um, do you like? We, we've talked before about the balance of exploring new ground, going back to old familiar territory. You know, it's enjoyable. Both are enjoyable. But do you sort of save covers? Like, all right, this is one of my best covers. I'm going to save this for the last week of October, the first week in November. Like, do you, do you do that? I would say that, um, I have September covers and I have, um, shuffle covers and I have leaf drop covers and okay. I, I have, you know, bare November days covers. Yeah. And sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. Okay. So I'm looking for different covers depending on the conditions and the time of year. Yeah. I mean, I went through on my way to, example, last night on my way to that wild raisin patch that I knew was going to be dried up. I went through a cover that I hung in September to get there, just thinking there was one oak tree in there, and I'm just thinking, ah, maybe, right? Yep. I'm just going to go, let's see what happens. And I was walking through it, and I was like, I can't believe birds ever live in this. (laughs) Like, it felt (laughs) wide open and... You know what I mean? But in September, there was a pretty healthy brood of birds living in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, and we went through it. I went through it one day in September, and we moved a fair amount of birds. 
And, you know, I didn't move any birds until I got back into the maple whips and the, and the, and the wild raisin and the pines and the lowland, you know. But just walking through that classic Aspen, I was like, you know, I won't, I won't be back in there, yeah. you know. So, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy how much it changes just as, you know, as just, short as grouse season know, is, you know. Right. Once I kill a bird in a spot, too, and the, the, uh, you know, I've kind of proved I, mm-hmm. I've outsmarted that spot. Yeah. But I, if I'm entertaining somebody or, or I've got Harrison and I know there's a spot with a bunch of birds, I, I might go to it for a third, yeah. rarely a fourth time that season. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it, different factors influence influence those types of decisions. Yeah. That's what I love about my trip out west is, you know, for the most part, we're not hunting stuff we even hunted the year before. We're just going out and finding new stuff. Yeah. Now, sometimes we'll go back to some favorite spots, but, you know, for the most, our two best days this year, we were hunting stuff we'd never hunted before. That's cool. In an area that we hadn't really even spent any time in. Yeah. All right. Last one. We have talked about the sandy soil stuff before, and we're not going to dive into it here today, but my question for you is when hunting sandy areas i i have a tendency like there are areas that i can hunt that are so high and dry and they like hardly even have like potholes or swales or that kind of stuff and i have a tendency to be really dismissive of those areas are there like when you're hunting sandier stuff which is a lot of what you hunt over in the northern lower are there still water features like creeks drainages potholes you've got yeah so while it's sandy soil you know you got to remember if if you start at the Mackinac Bridge and you go west on US 2 or you go south down US 31 Mm. how many rivers and creeks do you cross there is a ton yep I mean there's a river every 30 to 60 miles minimum that run, you know, a lot of them run right in the middle of the state or, you know. So we've got just a lot of drainages that on, on what would be the eastern shore of Lake Michigan and the southern shore of Lake Michigan. And that's what, you know, that's what all the water stuff is. We've been kind of in a drought until the last two weeks yeah. where, you know, there's not even water seasonally holding in areas that typically, when I say seasonal, holds water for six, seven, eight months of the year. And, and recently, it's held it, you know, 365 days of the year. So that's, we have plenty of moisture here. Yep. So if you were, if you were looking at an area that was very high, dry, and sandy, and there weren't a lot of like potholes, rivers, swales. Like, do you keep driving? Do you have an, do you have any thoughts on yeah, like how I you would probably, approach that? I, I, I typically think water is an extremely important component on yep. rough grass. Yeah. And moving water is more important than standing water. Yeah. Yep. Even, I, even when we're in Minnesota, it seems like some of our best spots are not that far from some river, creek, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, even a slow moving sort of swampy right. dra- ri- yeah. creek, whatever. Drainage. Yeah, yep, yeah. yep. I I think very similarly, and and sometimes I I struggle hunting certain areas that are that don't have that stuff. Um, even though I know there are some birds there, but it does seem to be more hit and miss. And I think there, right. there's probably a correlation there. But yeah, they like water. Yep, yep. They do. Water grows bugs. It, you know, all the stuff that comes with it. Yep. Right. Yeah. 
Awesome, man. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us once no again on, on the Bird Chat Podcast. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. Hopefully the listeners that requested me are bored. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I, as I told you, we got an above average number of, of question submissions. So thanks to everybody that submitted. Of course, thanks to Fritz for, for sharing some time with us and giving his thoughts on all of the questions. Uh, that does it for this episode of the show. Thanks, buddy. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.